0: In this week's episode we are chatting to Rosalind Rathouse, founder of Cookery School at Little Portland Street in the fine city of London. Now at 75 years old, when most people are thinking about taking their foot off the gas, this week's guest has plans to shake up the school curriculum. Forget home economics or food technology, Rosalind's vision is to offer every single child aged between 5 and 15 the chance to go on an annual week-long intensive cookery course. She believes immersing the younger generation in the delights of baking bread or preparing a roast would set them up for the rest of their lives and give them real insight into nutrition and sustainability. And Rosalind knows what she's talking about. Her teaching experience spans five decades, starting in South Africa in the late 1960s with a bit of culinary bribery. And in the 16 years since her cookery school at Little Portland Street opened, she has welcomed tens of thousands of students through its doors. They include senior figures from all over Africa, taking part in Desmond Tutu's African Leadership Institute training program. And if you're wondering what cookery has to do with executive coaching, all will become clear. I very much hope you enjoy this week's conversation. Rosalind Rathouse, thank you so much for sparing the time to be on the podcast. It's hugely appreciated. Can you just explain to listeners where on planet Earth we are today, please?
1: Well, we're at Cookery School at Little Portland Street, centre of London, Most polluted part of London.
0: (laughs) Not in here. In here we've got beautiful air conditioning and the smell of fresh pastries. You've spoiled me already. I think I've had a croissant. uh, Pan au chocolat. Yeah, you're spoiling me.
1: Yes. Puff pastry day. Yeah,
0: and a cup of tea. All made by your wonderful students downstairs. So I love coming to meet people in food and drink. Thank you for spoiling me so much. Um, I'm looking forward to finding out about your your cooking school. You've got an incredible history uh, spanning multiple decades and I'm really, really... Uh, excited to meet you but I want to start um, more than 50 years ago I think there was an interesting story about you in South Africa having to bribe policemen in the start of your career is that right and can you just tell me a little bit about where it started and and how you were so mischievous
1: Um, well we'd come to live in England I went back to South Africa very unhappily I have to say but um, we'd promised my husband's partner that we'd go back and um, his dad had died just before we left. So we promised his mom we'd go back and we went back to South Africa. So I found myself with two small children and not wanting to be there. So I started to teach friends how to teach and it grew into a cookery school. There weren't such things as cookery schools around in the early 1960s, late 1960s in South Africa. And we'd built a little house and across the road from us was the special branch man. The special branch in the 60s, 70s in South Africa was were dreadful. There was an element of Nazism in that. I've never thought about it until now, actually, the analogy. But perhaps even, no, I was going to say worse, they used to torture people. He used to work in somewhere called John Foster Square. I can't remember his name, but um, he was awful. And I used to have people coming to the house that were then called the servants, the girl or the boy, and they would come to learn to cook. Had to have white classes and black classes, you couldn't mix them. And um, they used to be delivered to the house with carrying their homework from the week before in Cadillacs and all sorts of snappy cars. And he used to see all these black people coming in to our house, which was just not allowed. He knew what was going on. So I used to send him everything we cooked. So you used to have duck larange and sole Veronique and creme caramel, all the things that you cooked in the late 60s, early 70s, fresh bread, muffins, pancakes, scones, you name it. He got the lot. So it was in his interest. I suppose it was a bribe. It was as obvious as a bribe. I never saw it as a bribe then. It was just, this is keeping him quiet.
0: Yeah, wow. And
1: I went on, was able to teach then.
0: How long was that for?
1: um i think it was three years Blimey. was he a very yeah. big guy
0: by the time you uh, by the time you stopped <laughs> i
1: don't know he was he looked like a fox really? that's all i remember he, yeah he was exceptionally well fed horrible yes a well-fed fox
0: okay and and then how come the the, the the local kids were
1: coming in they were brought in by the people they worked for right so they would be called the house girl or the house boy i mean it was so derogatory the names that they were given but once they'd learned to cook they'd become the cook Okay. which was really um, an extension of, I suppose, what they were doing. But they would be in the kitchen and that would allow them to feel that they'd had some sort of advancement. Perhaps a bit of extra money came with it if they were lucky. But they'd moved away from just being domestic okay. cleaners, really.
0: Amazing. Mm-hmm. And where did your cooking skills come from? Had you taught before? or was No, this all from I just your loved model? food. Really?
1: Yeah, I came from a family that loved food. And from the time I was little, I used to be encouraged to cook. From your mother? Yes, yeah. Particular style of food? Anything. My mother just loved food, so I just picked that up from her. I can say that my love of food comes directly from my mother.
0: And and quite a competitive uh, family, I heard, because was there some sort of uh, agriculture show in Johannesburg where you all used to compete?
1: Yes, once Yeah, they had something called the Rand Easter show. It was an agricultural show and we used to compete. There was something called the home industry section and we used to take uh, cakes mainly into the home industries and they would judge them. And I was allowed to be late for school that day and I'd sit very proudly in the back seat of the car with a tray balanced on my lap with two or three different items on it and on paper plates with your name stapled to them so they knew who it was. But in later years, um, in my mum, my aunt, and I used to compete against each other. We'd use the same recipe. Really? and who, who Different years, different people oh, would win. It was so
0: diplomatic, wasn't yeah. it? <laughs> okay. So, yeah, Excellent. it was good. Good fun. Um, and then the, the style of teaching then, was this a, was this a hands-on? Or did you, have, you didn't have no, a commercial kitchen? No, for, hands-on. So, you know, no hands-on. We, we,
1: we had just built a house. My husband was an architect, so we built this little house. Um, very compact house he would built a kitchen where I could demonstrate a demonstration kitchen okay. so people would sit on one side of it and I would be on the other and they would I would show them what to do but they would always have to have homework they had homework every week so they'd have to go home and cook something that they'd learned in the lesson one or two dishes and bring them the next week for everyone to taste They were so diligent. They were so wonderful. And they'd all come the following week bearing tins. Wow. And I learned a lot just by doing that. They'd say, this week my cake is terrible. I just did it so quickly. And they'd open the cake tin and there'd be this amazing cake, light as a feather because they thought that labor that you put into something made something better. Someone else would say, I've worked very hard at my cake this week, and you'd open it in the tin, and there'd be this absolutely flat cake. Because what they'd done is, with all the mixing, they'd beaten all the air out of it. Mm -hmm. So it didn't take too long. I didn't realize it was in those days it was to do with gluten and all sorts of other things. But I learned very quickly that if you worked swiftly... And you didn't overmix things; you got a great result. So I could only teach with saying that, not always knowing the reason. Okay. Um, and they were fabulous. When I first started cookery school in London, I gave people homework the first week. No one did anything, really? or subsequently did they ever do a bit of homework, oh. cooking homework. So I just gave up on that, mm. and it made you realise how valued. Mm every bit of education in South Africa was.
0: Okay, and there was a big gap. So you came back after three years and then you spent the next three decades teaching in other people's establishments, is that right? No,
1: I didn't, I was a teacher.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, I taught in schools. Yeah,
0: any particular job, before you opened the cookery school, any particular job that stood out? Lots of
1: different ones, no, no, no. But they were all all
0: kind of learning your craft of teaching more, presumably. Yes, Yes.
1: and I always felt that it was unfair because I came from a generation where the husband was the breadwinner, and having being the breadwinner at that stage and not liking my job made me realise that what a responsibility it was for a man to have that sort of on his shoulders. And I swore that I would never not work; that it would always be shared, and it was. Wow. Yeah, he earned a lot more than me at various stages because we built a practice up for him, and he worked and brought in the majority of what we needed to live off, but I always did work. You've stood by that for
0: a long time because you're 75 now, I think, aren't you? Yes. Linda, right? almost and 76. Al- almost yes. 70, still going yes. strong. You, oh, you've yes. kept up that work ethic. Yes, yes. Uh, Sometimes long... I
1: think it was crazy. Yeah. But, yeah, you nice. You probably earned a little lucky. rest, but I
0: know that we're going to come on to the stuff yes. you're going to do in the future yes. and you're not going to be resting for a while. Before we come to the start of, of the Cookery School, with all, I, I know one of your passions is around teaching in mm-hmm. schools and teaching kids. Um, so, And, and I, you must have seen over the years a lot of changes in the national curriculum and whatever it's... Uh, uh, whatever it's called now. I think it's cooking and nutrition. It's been home economics. If you, Rosalind, was in charge of the national curriculum on food, what would be different? How would you do it?
1: Oh, boy, it would be so different. You've got me on my hobby I horse. know. <laughs>
0: um,
1: there needs to be a new subject. Right. And Go it's on. just got to be called cooking. <laughs> yeah. And I have been working on it, actually, because when I finally leave cookery school, that'll be my final project in some form. Every child from the age of five to 15 needs to have a week of cookery a year, that is all. But I would like them, I'm sure the government would agree with this, I would like them to have a concentrated week when they're 5, when they're 6, when they're 7, that's all in the whole year. They're not a weekly thing that gets fitted into the curriculum, just an intensive week of cooking. And that would just allow them to experience the joy of cooking. It would be age-appropriate. With that, automatically goes where ingredients come from. So you're learning about the provenance, you're learning about seasonality, what grows in your area, that sort of thing. And at the same time, you're learning about diet. So you're killing a whole lot of birds with one stone just in that week. And if each year you reinforce it and they have a week of wonderful cooking, by the time they reach 15, they would have had 10 weeks of cooking because that week wouldn't be a week in isolation. It would excite them enough to go off and do some stuff at home, tell their parents about it, and you could build on it. It's a very, very simple concept, and I think it would work. Um, and that's what I'd love to do, because I think what has been lost is the ability of anyone to feel that they can cook. People watch television shows, they watch chefs on television, and it's entertainment. They don't see it as relating to them. Yes, some people that are enthusiasts do, and they take stuff away from those programs, but most people just watch them. They're just fun, and I think, if anything, they counterproductive, because we hear people saying, I can't cook because I can't chop like a chef. My mother couldn't chop. My grandmother couldn't chop like a chef either. Nigella can't chop like a chef. And they all produce beautiful food. So I think there are a lot of myths that one has to destroy. That's not what cooking is about nor is it about a bake-off, really. People imagine that baking is doing that sort of stuff, but baking is so easy if you know how to do it.
0: Yeah, I, I will, I'll vote for you, Rosalind. that would be amazing <laughs> to uh, to get that for the kids. Are there certain things that you think we've lost then that kids would, would, you know, are there two or three key things that you think they would get from that that has become a problem in our current food culture?
1: I'll just go back a little. When I first came to live in England, it was 55 years ago, People were cooking still. We were all cooking. The last fifty years have been dire for so many things. And even if you ate bully beef, you got a tin of fray Bentos beef, you had to cut it up and put it in a frying pan because it had horrible white fat around it. And the fry it a little and the fat would melt and you'd eat hot fat. But you had to put it do something with it. Even if you um, opened a tin of you could buy a tin of steak and kidney pie, you had to take it out of the tin and put it into the oven. And there was a a small amount of cooking. Everyone cooked, even if it was minimally. No one cooks much at all because you can buy instant food. You can go and buy a, a meal in a tray and all you do is pop it into your microwave. We didn't have microwaves. So, I mean, microwaves have changed the culture hugely as well. So I think with all that has come a very, there is a really serious situation. Obesity is rife. Um, Diets are just awful. People don't even know what to eat anymore. People don't even know what ingredients look like, many ingredients, Um, they can't recognize them. And if you were teaching children how to cook, You'd whack the obesity straight away with diet. You'd actually also whack the environmental stuff because they'd understand about sustainability and they'd understand how to cook so that you didn't need to depend on very heavy um, processed food because with processed food as well, of course, goes the salts and the sugars. And if you're cooking for yourself, you just put in a small amount. If you're buying processed food, you're having a huge amount of the bad stuff. Uh,
0: so 2003, you set up the cookery school. What's, yeah. what's the motivation then to solve some of those problems?
1: Or? Well, no, no, nothing as grand as that. I was, um, at that stage, I was a study skills tutor. And I was teaching loads of children every week. And I built up a, an enormous practice at home. My husband had been ill and that had started by accident. I was still of the generation where things went wrong if. A parent was ill I'd say don't worry I'll take time out from work and I'll look out after them. My husband had been ill and he said you're not going to look after me staying at home looking after me and I started I said I'd teach one child how, at home how to do stuff and before I knew it I had this huge study skills um, practice and I was seeing about 40 children a week but it was from home and it wasn't solitary at all because I was talking to so many schools going in for meetings kids in and out the whole day, it was really good. And there was a year off boy that I was teaching. In those days, you could still do modular um, subjects in a modular form for A-levels. And he had to do one or two retakes. And um, I, I persuaded him to take the year off school and take retake and just catch his breath and decided what he wants to do, wanted to do, because he was a year too young really for his year. And so he went off and he did, a, he did his retakes. He went off. He did um, a word processing course because I think that's a really handy thinking tool. And then he came back and said, now what am I going to do? And he was one of those boys and he said anything to him. If you fancy that, and said, nah, nah, you know. Anyway, I finally said, what about learning to cook? And he said, ah, oh, yes. So we phoned up the couple of schools that were around in those days and no one had a space for him. And I said, if I had time, Jake, I would teach you how to cook. Because in my youth, I had a cookery school in South Africa. And um, left it at that, that night, I was repeating that story to my husband and daughters who happened to be home. And they said, this is your chance. You've always wanted to have a cookery school, do it. And that is when we found the space, set it up and it, That's how it started. I then told all the parents of the children that I was teaching that I would hold on to their children until they no longer needed me. So the first year I dropped half of them, and the next year I dropped another half. It took quite a few years until I didn't have anyone that I was teaching. The few that I did teach used to come to cookery school at 7 in the morning before school, and they'd have their lesson, occasionally the odd one after school, and finally... They all disappeared, and I was able to turn all my attention to cookery school.
0: So, two, thousand and six comes along, and that's basically when you can go mm. full time. And that was a that was a brave thing to do to get that building um, just off a conversation with your with your husband and your well, kids. Didn't I guess when feel you feel that brave,
1: just felt like it was fun.
0: Yeah the next yeah, stage yeah, it must have been exciting stage. having done it in South Africa in the 60s to finally you know 2003 comes mm-hmm. along and all of a sudden you've got uh, the startings of a cookery school in London did you feel excited mm-hmm. or did it just feel no, like it it the just next stage no just fell into
1: place you don't yeah. There are always problems, you know, setting things up and you become involved with the detail rather than the principle of what you've done. It's rather like looking back to South Africa now and thinking about teaching in those early days and the guy across the road. I think, how could I have done that? Were you crazy? But the first thing I did actually was in a block of flats. I forgot that. We were the first flat in a huge block of flats And that's where I did the first teaching. And um, in those days, I only used to do the maids that used to come to classes. And all the people in the building complained. Oh, really? And we were stopped. Okay. Yeah, they shut me down. And that's when we built the house. Right, excellent. And so I was sort of, you were so focused on what you were doing that you just got on with it. You just left that rubbish behind you and got on with the next step. Yeah. And I think it was rather like setting up cookery school here. just having decided to do it, you did it, and it just had to fit in with your life. Right. You know. So um,
0: you, you open up properly. And, yeah. Uh, who were your clients? Who was Well, coming in? during
1: the week I couldn't teach much. I'd come in in the evenings at six o'clock. Oh, and Kay, that's with us now, started at soon after that with me, so Kay's been with me for close on 16 years, and Kay would come in during the day and do some cleaning and some preparation, and then I'd come in the evening and give the odd class, and slowly it built up. Once I had a really gorgeous Japanese assistant, she swapped me helping in the kitchen for learning how to cook. Her name was Mai, she was fabulous. And sometimes I remember on one, in fact, on one particular course, we had one man that did a three-day course, the two of us with one man there. And my family said, are you absolutely crazy? Why didn't you cancel it? Said, no, we can't. If we teach him how to cook, he'll go away and tell other people about it and that's how we'll build up. So it's hard to believe from those early days The thousands of people come through the school in a year now.
0: Yeah, so how many is it now, you've said? I read a figure of you've taught 40,000 people or something like that, is that that true? Well, it's
1: 16 years. And if we're very conservative, you could say 5,000 people a year. I don't know what that is.
0: Yeah, dreadful of me. Yeah, it's it's a lot of people just <laughs> over over a great period of time, mm. and and then so your your motivation then for this isn't about because I know you get cross with the very uh, chefy kind of programmes, mm. and you mentioned the knife skills and stuff like that. So mm. one of the things you're known for, I think, is, is keeping food very real, isn't it? It's the practicalities mm. of mm. cooking, uh, and quite a diverse market. This isn't a chef school for creating the next uh, kind of Gordon Ramsay. This is about people being able to live. I think. Can you just explain the ethos about yeah? the yes. who you you teach and why yes
1: it's about bringing back good home cooking skills the things that i was saying people have missed out on over the last increasingly over the last 50 years Um, to the point now that very few people actually do cook we see people coming in to the kitchens and they really sometimes don't even know how to hold a knife so it's teaching them things that are easy to do that are accessible for example the first thing they learn on our beginner's course is how to use an oven, because that's really easy. You just put your, say, a roasted chicken in with some potatoes or veg around it. Just got to put some garlic or whatever you want to do on top of it, ginger, whatever you want to do. Nice loads of olive oil into the oven. And when it comes out, there's this glorious meal. And they can't believe they've created it and it's been so easy. So it's that sort of thing we do. Even things like a creme caramel couldn't be much easier if you just know they've got to keep the temperature down. So they're creating something that they think is a really fantastic restaurant food, but so easy to do themselves. Bread likewise, bread's very forgiving um, and so versatile. So those are the sort of things we do. It's always food that's easily replicable at home. And it's also making them feel very empowered. You've got to feel you can go away and do it. We never, ever reprimand anyone because you've always got to feel what you've done is okay and that you can build on something. Um, we also pounce on mistakes. We think mistakes are a great way of learning. We never say, oh, my God, look, you've screwed up. But if someone makes a mistake, we warn them at the beginning of classes, this is what we do, that if someone makes a mistake in the class or if we make a mistake, we are also fallible, that we will use the mistake as a a teaching point. So we'll say, okay, this has gone wrong, your mayonnaise or aioli has split, so what do you do? And we show them how to pull it together. And we say to them, you're just unlucky that that happened to you and that other peoples have worked today. But maybe when they go home and they do it and they make a little error of some sort, theirs will go wrong but if they know what the points are that you've got to watch out for so that you don't err and that you know what to do if you have made a mess and how you can correct it you've benefited from the mistake yeah
0: and one of your most intense courses or longest course I think is it six weeks is yes. that your your longest one and, it's and a can professional you, course are you taking people literally from can't Absolutely. cook to to where where how far how much can you teach in six weeks Everything. Really?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Because people go to
0: cookery school for years sometimes, don't they? It's rubbish. (laughs) Yeah?
1: That is the teacher side of me. I've taught for 55 years. If you're in a school and you see how much time-wasting happens in schools and in colleges, how much sitting around there is, how much chatting time, yeah, the socialising is really nice. But... If you really want to learn things, you can learn very rapidly. I learned that in my years as a study skills tutor, where children would come to me in March, and they'd done no work for a whole year, and they'd be panicky and suicidal. And I used to say to their parents, I don't want them to go to school for three weeks. They'd come to see me because I was their last hope of passing that year. And I'd say to them, I don't want your child to go to school for three weeks. And they'd say, oh, that's impossible. So I'd say, can we look at your timetable? So we'd get the weekly timetable out with a a colored pen, and we'd say, OK, let's mark in all the subjects you're doing for your A-level. And we'd mark in those blocks. And then we'd look at all the others. And there were things like, I don't know, uh, gym, PE, some sort of religious stuff assemblies, breaks, and if you looked at the week, the amount of real work that happened in a week was minimal. So what they would agree, that they would send a letter to the school, and it always had to use the word stress in it, because schools let you off if you were stressed, and they were stressed, to be fair, and they would sit at home, we'd work out a program of revision, And we'd start with the thing that worried them most first. So we could get that out of the way and we'd say, well, there you go. You don't need to worry about that now. You've got a whole set of notes to work from. And all sorts of silly things you could do, revision aids, sticking things up on the wall, learning, all different sort of learning techniques. And they would pass and pass very well. Wow. Because they felt that they were targeted. They knew what they were doing. They had an overview of what they were doing Mm -hmm. and they understood it. And that made me realize that the same thing applied to cooking. That if you actually take principles and you teach them to people, they learn to cook very quickly. Our cookery book, which is a handbook, it's not a glossy table. The designer used a fantastic designer on it um, called Kate Moros, she designed it. And my only brief to her was I don't want to photograph anywhere except the cover can have a photograph if you want to use it. And my husband had always wanted those O's to be used in a design. So that is all. Anything else you want to do is over to you. She set it out very well. The typography is great. And that is the book. It's a manual. You take it into the kitchen, you spill things on it, and you use it. And we, what we do is, say we're teaching a soup. We will teach the principle of a soup, how you make a soup, Say, so fry your onions. If you're adding some garlic, fry some garlic. Add your vegetables and add a stock um, as a basic sort of soup. Cook it. If you leave it chunky with all your veggies in, you've got a chunky soup like a minestrone. If you want it smooth, you blitz it, and you've got a smooth soup like a cream of carrot soup or a potato soup or whatever you want. And so at the end of the class, a three-hour class, the people that are learning to do soups will have six soups under their belt, and no soup. The following week, we do stews. The following week, we do roasts. And so we work through everything that way. So our cook certificate is based on the same principle. Each day, they do a completely new topic. Today, when you came in, they were doing puff pastries. They spent a whole day just doing puff pastry. You saw how much they turned out. I, but, I, I ate it. It was delicious. Yeah. But because puff pastry... And croissant, a croissant dough, are the same. It is just that a puff pastry is made on a flour and water base, whereas a croissant is made on a base made with milk, but with a yeast in it. But the technique of folding and rolling and folding is identical. So we get them to do them in a parallel parallel, because it reinforces the technique really gets into the head how you have to roll and fold to form the little layers, whether it's in a croissant or in a bit of puff pastry. And at the end of the day, they've learned it. Yesterday, it was short pastry. Um, And then tomorrow, they have um, a half a day where we test them, but we don't test them for marks. They test themselves. They have an assessment. They've got to cook a three-course meal of everything they've learned to date um, in three hours for four people. And it will have contain all the elements that they've done over the past week so that we are reinforcing. And um, it works beautifully. We know it works well because when we send them for a weeks' work experience at the end of the course to a restaurant, we use really good restaurants, umpteen times they've been offered jobs on the spot. Amazing. And they've come in very often unable to cook. Yeah, that's a, so that's a great know thing to works. offer, isn't it? I
0: know so many uh, chefs who do, you know, I don't know, yeah, two years at college mm-hmm. or long apprenticeships and stuff like that. I, I, I'm a big fan of condensing stuff into, uh, yeah, quick learning. Um, so if somebody comes in, I, I guess I, I read a little bit about, mm-hmm. um, you know, a course that you did where there was a 13-year-old and an 80-year-old, I think, who met each other and ended yes. up sitting next isn't to each that other. is lovely? Uh, lovely? I love the idea. It was idea. a beginner's
1: course just really? a few years ago. That's amazing. And he was doing, I think his wife had Alzheimer's yeah. and he had to learn to cook.
0: And is that a growing market? Because we see more about dementia. And well, interestingly
1: and you- enough, we've just put on, we tried recently to put a course on, for, we called it Senior Suppers. Yeah. And we thought that it would be really attract people that want to learn to cook. Because friends of mine say that they know lots of people that are either lonely or need to learn to cook. And we thought it'd be such a great social thing. Mm. No take up on it at all. Really? No, so no. we've abandoned it. For now. For now. Yeah, because I think, no, yeah,
0: maybe it's a, it's a route to market because it feels like, you know, yeah. I was thinking of my granddad, it was a terrible cook because yeah. historically, I think, you know, it was, the, it was the wives that did most of the cooking That's in the right. house. And there must be a, a lot of men out there yeah. now who, A, can't cook, um, but B, would be, yeah, more willing to learn. And I think the social side, I particularly, you know, love the idea yeah. of a 13 year old and 18 year old. It's and so easy. Chatting the thing that
1: upsets me about cooking is people that take ownership of cooking, especially chefs, mm. always make people feel that this is something. Big. Look what we do. This is, yeah, I really think good chefs, there is something big about it, but not in a different way, because I think really good chefs take really good ingredients, cook them simply and turn out something stunning. But there's this feeling that you have to be able to cook well. Cooking is just so straightforward, yeah. and reputations are so flimsy. You hear people say, oh, so-and-so is a really good cook. It's usually because they can just do a few dishes well. Yeah. Um, but cooking, I'm always saying to people that cooking is not like learning maths or learning English, where you start at the bottom, learning letters and learning words and so on until you can read sentences. You could, say, learn to make bread and be a brilliant bread baker and not be able to make a stew. And each area is quite different, requiring different sort of skills. But once you've got them, you've got them for life, and they are so straightforward. It's just that you've got to do it. And as soon as you do it, you think, well...
0: Yeah. I, think, I think the skill of the chef often is not so much, uh, you know, lots of people can cook and, and cook for a family of four or a family of six. Mm. I think when you see a chef come into their own is when they've got 180 people coming in for yeah. dinner that night. And then, you know, another 200 coming for breakfast and lunch. Yes. And then when you get in the kitchen, you go, oh, my goodness, they're producing en masse. And that's wow. where it becomes a, a, a yes. real profession. But actually, you're right. You know, the, the cooking yeah. of many of the, the dishes yeah. is uh, is super simple and such a phenomenal life skill.
1: Yeah, and it's organisational too, isn't it?
0: Very much so. Military yeah. so, yeah. yeah. It's, all, it's yeah, yeah. all in the preparation. Yeah. So one of the other things, apart from... Um, yeah, just your, your, your passion and your simplicity, I suppose, is your, your love of sustainability, um, right. both in, in some of the practices. And you've got some really good uh, tips on things you can do in the kitchen to be more sustainable, mm-hmm. but also in the provenance of the food. So your, your desire to follow the seasons that you predominantly use, organic meat, just looking at the supply chain a little bit to start with. Why, why do you think that's important? Why is organic important? Why is it important that chefs know where the food comes from?
1: I think it's very important that you know where it comes from, because otherwise, you can't understand how to use it or, or go the other way around. If you're using it, you ought to know where it's come from so that um, you know that it's good. When we used to do, in the early days of School, we did a lot of chef training, huge amounts of chef training. And we used to send chefs out with money to go and buy seasonal ingredients. And they'd come back in the middle of winter with sweet corn. Or they just had no idea of seasonality, which made me realize that we live in a society now where you can get anything at any time of the year, provided you're prepared to pay for it. And also, um, no one has any idea of what the season is. I remember even when I first came to London, I was working on the Harrow Road, In the um, summer, they used to have these burrows just with heaps of strawberries. We used to live for those, that summer when the strawberries came. As a child, I remember that when, um, we used to call them nachis. Satsumas came in in the winter. The excitement of eating those uh, nachis, those satsumas was so exciting. You don't have that much anymore. No one longs for the change of season because they're not so clearly differentiated anymore. If you buy seasonal food, it's usually cheaper, it's usually local, and it brings the changes. I think that's really important. And of course, it brings down the carbon footprint of everything you do, and that's really important.
0: Mm. I always give the example of asparagus, which I think is such a phenomenal oh, yes. ingredient. Yes. And it's only in season for 10 weeks. And exactly the same as strawberries, really. You can eat asparagus all year round, but most of the time it's, it's rubbish. Awful. It's like South in, American mac. Those Egyptian strawberries. Yeah. But you're right, hit, hit the seasons. And, and that's exciting. That's and true. I do agree also that. Uh, I don't know I think there's something good for our psychology that if we if we know what's growing in the ground and we follow the seasons on our plate. I just think it's good for keeping us grounded and 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 not being depressed because it's the end of summer and autumn's coming but be excited about the fact that you know the butternut squashes are coming into season yes. and the pumpkins and then when spring comes and all of a sudden and the lamb comes me. to life. I think and it's good. And everything's
1: green and yeah. fresh yeah. and I think it's, yeah, it's I good. I, I think pumpkins.
0: there's something hardwired into our DNA that we've yeah. forgotten and actually Yeah, through food and through growing um, is a really easy way to get back to that. I have the Riverford uh, organic uh, veg boxes delivered each week. And uh, it's, you know, I'm I'm admittedly, I'm in the trade, but it's so exciting to see what's coming through. And it really reminds you of what's going on And also they
1: put unusual things, don't they? Things that are perhaps what people sometimes refer to as forgotten veg. Yeah,
0: absolutely. And they're so
1: delicious. Things like green garlic. I love it when green garlic comes in. We do a beautiful green garlic souffle. Yeah. Just sensational. And I dream about that as well. Amazing. Yeah.
0: So, apart from the produce, uh, the, the food, there's also a number of things that you can do in the kitchen, I think, for mm. sustainability. Mm. We touched on plastics earlier. We talked, I think you've got advice on, you know, put a lid on the saucepan. Mm. Am I right in saying that you actually run a, a sort of sustainability course and a waste course? Yes, so, we run
1: a day right. called Sustainable Kitchen, okay. where we show people how to be sustainable in the kitchen and how easy it is. So, can you give
0: us a few tips?
1: Um, Well, yes, what we do, for example, is they go out. The morning is spent just watching videos, seeing horrendous practices. So people realize what does happen in the world with food and um, becoming au fait with terminology and things. So you're speaking, it's very easy um, to speak to them because if you're talking about methane and methane output, that's so horrendous now um, for our environment they know what you're talking about, and they understand why they should be doing something to try and reduce them. I think that if you actually say you have to do this or that without a reason and without understanding, that's a tall order. So we spend the morning doing that, talking about people's experiences, and we often have really interesting people on the courses that are in some area of environmental uh, activity. Then we give them money, and a grid, and they've got to go to the supermarket and they've got to fill it in. And they've got to see where a piece of fish, use fish because that's such a difficult one, piece of fish. uh, They've got to buy a piece of fish, a local veg, and um, and a local fruit. And they have to fill a grid in for all sorts of things, where meat's coming from, where flour, milk, very basic things. And the grid asks them where it comes from, whether it has any accreditation, like red tractor or maybe soil association. And they do that as as a group and they divide themselves up and they each usually take a section and do it and then they share their findings afterwards and discuss them. And then they've got to come back and they've got to cook this meal. In addition to what they've bought, they have to use some waste ingredients in the kitchen. Of we've got things that have wilted or that could be used in a soup but there's always a waste, a pile of waste ingredients, uh, usually veg, that they have to use. So they cook a meal, and what they learn from doing that is, firstly, they've learned about ingredients, Then, when they come to do the cooking, how do you cook it? If you've got one piece of fish on a tray, are you going to turn the oven on and use it with all the energy that entails, or... Are you going to just cook it on a hob? Or are you all together going to say, we're all going to cook in the oven so that you really use the energy that the oven has well. And the, the same way as we would say to chefs, don't go into the kitchen. I'm sure you know about this. And as you come in, turn the salamander on and the oven's on. And all the hobs, maybe, just for good luck. It
0: drives me bonkers. When I walk in at half past ten in the morning That's and you, right. you know, we finish finished breakfast, we've got an hour till lunch. Just why turn it all off. The on? That's
1: right. Turn yeah. it all off, which ah. is the same sort of thing in the kitchen. Just drawing your attention to why you do it. Yes. Um, So, and then they've got to write that because it's an accredited course. They've got to actually document what they've done, why they've chosen to cook in a hob, why they've chosen the fish that they've chosen or the method of cooking or whatever it is, so that it brings sustainability to life, becomes practical. And I think that gives people, it's a conscience-pricking exercise. It's food for thought. And we're not saying you have to do this. Our message is, Do whatever you can, because whatever you can do is a help. If a lot of people are doing just a little to start with, it all adds up, and slowly you learn how to do things um, in a sustainable way. And we always quote our journey. We say our sustainable journey has been a slow one and a learning one. It hasn't been overnight, and now it's just in our DNA. We just do it without thinking about it. We still do find things that... Every now and then we think, ooh, why are we doing that? Because you get tunnel vision on what you're doing and we have to change things. Mm. But You've done phenomenally
0: in... well, haven't you? Because you were three stars, I think, from the Sustainable Restaurant yes, Association yes. year after year after year, wasn't yes. it? So clearly yes. it's well drilled no, into your DNA. really it is. So congratulations. But we've just
1: been doing it. Thank you. It's just part of what we do. Yeah, no, I agree. As and you know, absolutely... you know. And I think the important thing for me is everyone has different ideas about how far they can go in what they're doing. Mm. And I think the bottom line for me is just to be as ethical as you can possibly be so it feels right for you.
0: Mm. Okay. You mentioned methane as being one of the challenges. Mm. Presumably that's a lot from sort of cows and the meat industry. Have you noticed a change in the growth of interest in vegan and vegetarian cooking? And is that the solution to that? Is it about eating less meat? Hugely.
1: Huge, huge. We have got a vegetarian course that we've put on. Um, we're just about next year to put on a vegan course. I met a lovely lady today who's going to come in and do Indonesian food for us. And I spoke to her about doing an Indonesian vegan course because we could easily do that. Um, so veganism is, yes. But again, I don't think it's the answer to everything. I think you've also got to live We are carnivores. If people enjoy meat, have meat, but have smaller portions of meat, use organic Grass fed meat, so that you know where it's coming from. If you're having and use every part of the animal, so it's not wasteful. And if you can, stretch it, like use it in sausages or in bolognese, so that you're still having meat, but you're not having your 16 ounce steak that people used to have. It's just a difference in um, the way you view things, in perception. You've just got to change your view of how you eat meat. But the other thing we all know is you've got to eat a lot of vegetables for loads of reasons, for the environment, but also for gut bacteria. The one thing we do a lot of work on, we don't do fatty things, but as you probably know, there's a lot of work done at the moment on the gut, on the biome. Mm. And um, so we do a class called Gut Health. And we use a really good dietitian. And um, we just show how easy it is to cook delicious food with probiotics, prebiotics and polyphenols in them. And people are always surprised that there's no compromise. You don't have to limit what you eat. You can have some red wine, you can have coffee. We do a lovely chocolate and olive oil mousse. And um, of course, some beautiful cheese from the fromagerie, you know, that's from unpasteurized milk. And it's a great diet no compromise there at all, but it's again for people that are interested they suddenly thinking mm, not so easy, not so difficult yeah. to cook for this sort of diet. Yeah, it
0: does come down to quality. I mean, a lot of the microbiomes in your gut are affected by antibiotics, I think, aren't they? Yes. Which not just the antibiotics oh, yes. that we take, but the fact that us, the you know, animals, 80% of antibiotics yes. in the world go into the animals, eat Isn't the animals. It's so hideous? It is hideous, yes. Yeah. And that's having an impact on our gut. Yeah. So it's nice to hear that you're focusing on that. Yes. And, and that really does come down to, to being you know, the able quality of the cook. food that you eat. And, and also eat being
1: able to just be able to do a minimal amount of cooking.
0: Yes. Yeah. You know, you
1: can't buy that in instant food, already no, made food.
0: No. I like the uh, quote, uh, Michael, Michael Pollock, I think, is it? Michael Pollan from... Um, the, the omnivore? Yeah, The Omnivore's Dilemma, who says, um, if it's made in a plant, don't eat it. And if it's made from plants, then eat it. And yeah. so much of our food now is made in plants, Absolutely. basically, isn't it? Yes, yeah, so, I agree uh, completely. Yeah. Um, you've also still got some links. I was reading that, um, going back to your, your sort of South African roots, mm. that you were, you were working while doing some leadership courses.
1: That has been such a fabulous... Um, 14 years, I have 14 to say. Years. We've done, so what are you doing? Well, 15 years ago, two guys from Shell said, unless you started training, in, uh, training people in Africa how to be leaders, the same type of leadership, corruption, etc., would go on and on. So they designed this course. It's a long course. It's, um, I think it's three weeks. Yeah. Spread out over a few months. Um, to teach people how to be leaders. And they spend the first week in the Cape, meeting each other and doing preliminary leadership things, and they have to go away and do a project. That is in April. Then in September, they meet in Oxford, and they present whatever their project has been to the rest of the group. They're usually between 20 and 25 people on it. And then they do another whole lot of leadership training exercises very innovative exercises. Then they come to London where, for the third week, where they meet again, various organizations, see how they work, people in law, the judiciary, all sorts of things, it depends on the year. And what they do one day with us, and they often cite our day as their most interesting, fun learning day. How much, they actually say how much they learn from the day. And um, I've worked for the last 14 years with an absolutely amazing organizational psychologist. And um, we plan the courses together. She tells me what she'd like out of them. And we just work together um, really well. We understand each other. And um, I become her mouthpiece. I run the whole course. And sometimes I'm a dictator, a bit of role play. And I'm quite tough because we are recreating some conditions that we want. And um, other times she'll say, do this or that, I want them to experience whatever it is. So we will translate whatever she wants into a food experience. This year, for example, we um, divided them up into regions. We've never done that before. We always throw the task at them as a caucus and they've got to just work on it. This year we divided them into regions Um, South, East and West Africa. There was no one from North Africa, so we left that out. And we put people from South Africa into the East African team and into the West African team, and like we muddled them all up. And they all had to make a meal from a particular area. The instruction actually told them um, what they all had to do. They had to all do something similar. It was um, they had to make a three-course meal one was uh, one course had to be vegetarian. One had to be uh, protein-based and of edge. And then, as in addition, they had to make a Chinese meal because the Chinese are there to stay. And they all did that and with various conditions that they have to comply with. And um, they all did that, a lot of organization in that for them. When they'd finished that, we ripped their labels off from the teams they were in. We've never done this before. And we then gave them a label. The first label said their name and East Africa or West Africa. It would be West Africa, Nigeria, East Africa, Kenya. We actually gave them a country that they had to cook from and gave them ingredients from that country. Then we got them to rip their apron labels off and replace them with their name, and it just said Team Africa. And the task, which was a really hard one, was to find a meal, and plan a meal together, all 22 of them, that represented Africa. And that was really hard, because the meal is unimportant. Mm -hmm. What was important is the thinking of what do we have in common, because, and the reason for that was, the African blocs just formed, Nigeria's been the last country to join it, and it's going to be the biggest, it is the biggest trading bloc in the world. It's not really operational yet, they've got a long way to go. But it was starting to make them think about themselves as a block. We are Team Africa. Amazing. Yeah. So it was fantastic. Yeah. So um, it's,
0: it's not so much about the the, the food and the learning no, to cook. No, it's no, all it's about the psychology and the yes, teamwork. And you, you, this gets filmed, is my understanding. Yes, it's it, all and filmed.
1: Play. And then they go back to usually you use Re by the Royal Institute of British Architects in the morning when they arrive. We give them a wonderful African breakfast there, and they do their planning there. Then they bring the ingredients over, we give them boxes of ingredients, they carry the ingredients over, there are loads of them, so they just share the ingredient, carrying to the kitchen, straight into the kitchen and get working. But in previous years, we've done different things, like um, something that comes up every year is corruption. Yeah. But we've got to keep it fresh because they speak to each other, they yeah. convene across Africa and in their countries periodically and they talk about it. So we've always got to have new ideas, that's a bit testing. But one of the things we've done is corruption's a big thing. So we deprive them when they're cooking of certain ingredients like oil, salt, is essential things. And then Edwin that you met will saddle up to someone with about this much oil, a fraction of oil in a little bottle. They'd say, do you want some oil? And they'll nod. And it's all filmed while they're doing this. And he'll say something like, I love your bracelet. Can I swap the oil for a bracelet and I'll say yes and I'll slap it off and give it to him. And that isn't the important part. The important thing is that they've done it because when they go back to debrief later and they see themselves doing that at arm's length, what it allows is a discussion about taking bribes or being corrupted. There's no difference taking oil really at cookery school or taking a black diamond from someone. And what it does is it then starts a conversation around how do you realize, how do you recognise if someone's, the word that comes to mind is grooming you or is approaching you in the way they oughtn't to, what, you should, what should you be doing, who do you share it with, and so on. So a lot of the issues that we have there um, are almost metaphors for what happens mm-hmm. in the real world. That's correct. Um, the kitchen becomes a microcosm. Yeah of what happens in the real world.
0: You should take some bits of that with your idea about uh, putting it into schools with kids, isn't it? Because the stuff yeah. they could learn, similar principles, I think, it's couldn't fantastic. they? fantastic. If you did it, you did it, it over 10 such, years at
1: school. Yeah, it's such yeah. strong learning. And the people on it are amazing. As Karen, the person that I work with, the, industri- uh, the organisational psychologist, says that when you're with them, you always think, have I ever been in a room with so many illustrious people? Because they're so energetic, they're so enthusiastic, and... Um, they're just so smart mm. and each year there's a new group and Amazing. they're more beautiful than the ones the year before just fabulous yeah that's yeah. really
0: really exciting isn't it so uh clearly you've got you know you're you're well respected and loved for what you've done over so many uh decades for how many people you've taught Funny
1: enough, it doesn't feel like
0: does that. it not No, oh, i did some research just, or no, no, the, but the, you, you know
1: what you do maybe that's other people's perception You do, I'm sure you feel the same thing. You do what you do. You you do. Because that's what you just set out to do. You don't actually think about it.
0: But not everybody does it for as long. So here you are, 75. That's true, that's true. Any thoughts on retiring? And if not, what's next?
1: Well, cookery school's been fantastic because my husband died a few years ago. And I think if I hadn't had cookery school um, that I had to get up for every day... I'd known him since I was 17, so it was a lifetime. It was like losing half of me, in a way, of myself. So I knew I had to get up and go and do what needed to be done at cookery school. So it was my salvation, in a way. But it's time, going to be time to move on soon, and that is going to be into food education, because I am quite outspoken, as you probably realize. I think that you only really have one chance And I think you've got to say and do what you believe. Um, And you've got to live by that. Yes. Um, And I think that I am horrified when I see the state of the cooking and the lack of knowledge people have on it. And that's something I'd like to do. We have a policy at cookery School, we never, ever say no to children. If a school phones and if they have a budget or if they don't have a budget, We say, yes, come in. We can't do a long session with you, but we can do a session with you, because that session can sometimes be pivotal in changing the mindset of a few children that have never encountered the experience that we're giving them. And I think that they love cooking. Children of all ages love cooking. I've yet to meet a child that says no, and they come into the kitchen, leave me out. They never do. They are always involved, and that, would be the next thing I would do. Yeah,
0: that would be exciting. Yeah. You're going to team yeah. up with, uh, so Jamie Oliver's tried to sort out what people get fed in the first instance. You're going to go and try and sort out what well, they cook? Are you, are
1: you teaming up? Well, I think he is fantastic. I think that what he's done has been absolutely brilliant because I think he's bought, highlighted, but they're for school meals. I know that a lot of chefs are trying to bring teaching of cooking into schools, but unfortunately they're chefs, they're not teachers. And I feel that. Having taught my whole life, teaching's a skill. Not everyone has the skill of teaching. It's something you you acquire and you understand. And I think you've got to be a teacher. It's great to share what they're doing. I'm not knocking it at all because I think it's brilliant. And I think that's such a, a step in the right direction. But I feel even more strongly than that, I believe that that has to come from the government. I think we do too much these days of doing things from the bottom up with enthusiastic people, there has got to be a government commitment. And it's urgent. It's as urgent as climate change. And I think they go hand in hand um, in many ways. And they've actually got to do something. And I think that's what we've got to prevail on them to do.
0: Yeah, No, I think you're right. I think just, just lecturing and telling people to change their habits is, mm. isn't going to work. You've got to show them. You've got to make them believe. You've got to make it real. Give them the experience. Yeah, so yeah, uh, yeah I'm, I'm a governor at a primary school and my wife's a primary school teacher. And uh, you're oh, right. Some great. people have a teaching gift. My wife, and Fiona, can walk into a classroom and the kids kind of look up and respect her. I walk into a classroom and they just see human climbing frame and they, mm. uh, they have run, run absolute riots. So yeah, even though my knowledge and passion is there for food, um, yeah, you need, you need good teachers and you Aye. need a good curriculum so I think what yes. you could do is you could really write a, a great curriculum yes. with your knowledge and the fact that you've managed to come up with a six week yes. cooking no, course is, uh, really, is a great really start works. Think, it really it? works yeah. well, I, I was going I,
1: to just ask you one thing has mm. your wife got a teacher's voice? No. has she got yes. a certain air of authority?
0: she's got this aura she's one of these mm. teachers she's one of these new age uh, teachers I would say or maybe old, uh, maybe it's old school but she can walk into a class she doesn't need to raise That's her voice right. she can That's walk right. into a class right. and she can put up her hand uh, in a certain way she can even close her eyes and just yes. go silent and, and, and the right. kids will look over and they'll see her somehow standing at the front of the class with her eyes closed and her hand up and, and this hush will appear in the class right. and then she will speak very softly and calmly to them and oh, they will brilliant. listen That's what you've got. it blows my mind how she does it but I don't that have that that is gift.
1: the skill of being a teacher Phenomenal. a good teacher it's confidence I think chef, it's walking
0: in there and not looking yeah, scared but
1: a chef, if I'm in a, cl- in a room and I want attention people will say shh shh clap their hands or hit a tin or something, and you say, no need, just leave it because it's a Chinese whisper. If you stand silently for long enough, they'll start nudging each other and pointing at you and being quiet, even adults.
0: Yeah, no, it's very And true. I
1: think that's the one of the skills I was saying of being a teacher is just knowing how to... In inverted commas work people
0: yeah it's incredible even in yeah. an assembly to be able to walk out in front of 500 kids and they go quiet and listen to you mm-hmm. i think is phenomenal so yes okay. we should celebrate uh, teaching more and okay. teachers and we should definitely get uh, get kids uh, cooking definitely. more um, if people want to find out more about your cookery school where should they go the website um, presumably um, the yeah. best place
1: www.cookeryschool.com all one word, .co.uk.
0: Excellent. Well, look, thank you so much for spending the time. It's just great oh, to hear. Uh, you You yes. know, for, for, I'm uh, another 30 years of, uh, of passion and enthusiasm for our sector before I reach your area of uh, level of knowledge and expertise, Rosalind. Well, so I hope I'm as excited in 30 years' time oh, as you are now. Thank but you. But congratulations Mark. for what you do. It's great. Thank
1: you so much. It was so lovely speaking to you. And you've got a nice, long way ahead of you.
0: Lovely. Thank you so much, Rosalind. Good. Cheers. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to this week's podcast. And remember that on the website, humansofhospitality.co.uk, every week we put on some show notes and some links through to the various websites or social media that are mentioned. And we also do a nice little breakdown of that week's conversations into specific topics. So you can jump through the podcast and just listen to some of the highlights if you wish. If you've not done so already, if you could leave us a review on iTunes or one of the other podcast players of your choice. That would be hugely appreciated. Thank you so much. And uh, we'll be out with another episode next Monday.